Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Okay, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. I want to talk to you today about covenant. It's going to mention the word covenant, and I want to talk about the lost language of covenant, the lost language of covenant. And we go, you say, where do you get that, Wayne? Well, in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8, it brings it up. It says in verse 6 of Hebrews 8, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much. Who's the he he's talking about here in the context? That's Jesus. That's our high priest. He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator, the one who stands between two opposing parties and brings peace of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. What I want to assert to you this morning is I don't believe we've, we've captured the meaning of covenant. It's seen in our relationships when they're broken. It's seen in the way sometimes we treat each other. Because if we don't understand covenant with God, we'll never understand covenant with each other. And I think it's important for us to go back and see if we can grasp the meaning of what covenant is. He has obtained for us a better covenant. The word covenant is the strongest word in any language for a, a binding relationship. When it comes to relationships, you cannot find a stronger word in Scripture. It is the most binding of all terms that you could use. The history of this word goes all the way back to the sixth chapter of Genesis, where it's first mentioned in Scripture. God chose this word out of human language and culture. This is so precious to me. He reached into man's vocabulary, reached into man's experience to describe to man and illustrate for him how he wanted to relate to mankind. In the Greek, the word means a testament. In other words, you're carrying around with you a book of covenants, the book of the old covenant and the book of the new covenant. We carry it with us every time we carry our Bible. It's imperative that we understand the meaning of covenant. Now today we want to go back, and that's exactly where we're going to start. I may spend several weeks on this because if you don't get covenant down, if you don't understand covenant, you will not completely appreciate the relationship that God now has with you if you're a believer through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's capture, if we can, the lost language of covenant. First of all, the motive of covenant. We're going to dig into the culture, but also see it in Scripture. The lost, the, the motive of covenant. Genesis is where we discover why God created man. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. We find there why God created man. What was his purpose for man? It says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now, there are three things in that verse that help us understand the purpose for which God created man. First of all, he says, let us make man in our image. We could put it this way. Let, it, let, let us make man as an extension of our life. 
The term our is important there. The word is Elohim, the plural word for God. And some people really play games with that. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The council of the Godhead together decided to make man as an extension of God's life. Secondly, God said, according to our likeness, let man be an expression of our character. Let him be an extension of our life. Let him be an expression of our character. Thirdly, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Let him be an exhibit of our power. Now that to me is exactly why God made us, breathed his life into us, that we might be an extension of that life, that we might therefore be an expression of his character, and then we'd be an exhibit of his power. That's the purpose of why man was created. God wanted skin through which he might reveal himself. But as we all know, God put a condition upon man. Man was innocent, but he was, and not, he was not perfect. Now, this is, this, is, this is important. There are a lot of people who take the first Adam and try to compare him with the second Adam. There is no comparison. The first Adam was only innocent. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, technically was the first Adam. The second Adam, Jesus, was perfect. And it's a big difference in being innocent and being perfect. God wanted man to choose to love and obey him. <coughs> Excuse me. It's really good on the ears. I understand that. And there is no spiritual way to do that. And I've been fighting this thing for a whole week, so you just hang in there with me. I got a cough drop right in here. Hopefully that'll help. But my throat dries up every now and then, so just hang on. God wanted man to choose to love and obey. So he put a condition on him. And I, this is so interesting because that condition is not only going to teach him, but it's going to test him. He's going to see if man is going to obey God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, it says, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit uh, yielding seed, it shall be food for you. He says, I've given you every tree. However, in chapter 2, verse 16, he changes it just a bit. He said, the Lord's God, in verse 16 of chapter 2, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you, sh you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, God said, if you disobey this commandment, you will die. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word death there has the idea of separation. And in this context, we begin to understand the dilemma of mankind. He's saying, in the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will be spiritually separated from me. You will die instantly spiritually. That would be a separation from me and you. Because of this separation, you will begin to die mentally because no longer can you discern my thoughts because you have been separated from me. And you will begin to die physically. If man sinned, that was the penalty. And God put this condition on man because he wanted man to choose and to love to obey him. The implication is in the day that Man would sin. He would cease to be an extension of God's life. He would cease to be an expression of God's character. And he would cease to be an exhibit of God's power. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us the sad, sad story. Their innocence was about to be lost. In Genesis chapter 3 at verse 1, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, indeed, has God said, isn't that the way he does all of us? Is that really what God said? Is that really, do you, do you know what God has said? He said, you shall not eat from any of the tree, any tree of the garden. That's not what God said. He said there was one tree they couldn't eat from, but he already is distorting what God has said. The woman said to the serpent, from the tree, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. Begin to doubt what God has said. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, in a strange sense, he was right. He's exactly right. They're going to know something they didn't know before. And what, they would know what sin was for the first time. They would understand it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now the Lord God had a plan all the time. Jesus is the lamb in, in the portals of heaven, ready to come and die for mankind before he even created this world. He already had a plan of redemption. Because he's omniscient, he already knew what man would do. He knew that, there, and he had a promise, and it begins to come out in Genesis chapter 3, that a seed would be born of woman that would crush or bruise the head of the serpent that had caused and deceived Eve. But from this point on, when, that, when man sinned in the garden, from this point on until the seed could come, it was downhill for mankind. The first murder occurs in chapter 4 and verse 8. Cain kills his brother Abel. Sin has ruined the extension of God's life. Sin has ruined the expression of God's character. Sin has ruined the exhibit of God's power. Man no longer functions in the image of God. In fact, in Genesis 5.3, it says when Adam had, had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son. Not in God's likeness, but it says in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Already the image has changed of mankind. Man's lost God's life. Man's lost the extension of that life and the expression of the character and the exhibit of his power. In chapter 6, God's about to flush all of creation down the tubes with the flood because of they had gotten so bad on this earth. Boy, you take God's life out of a picture, and it just it goes downhill from that point. But there was a man that found favor in God's eyes. His name was Noah. And Genesis 5.32 tells us that Noah was the father of Shem and of Ham and of Japheth. Although man continued to go downward, we find in Genesis 6.8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is most interesting. The word for favor is the word for grace. You see, grace cannot be disassociated from love. God loves, and out of that love comes his grace. Or you can back it up. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, that's who God is. And he's, he, he's the one who continued to maintain his promise. In the midst of the terrible circumstances of sin on this earth, God showed his grace and his love to a man by the name of Noah and it's in Genesis 6, 18, the first time that the word covenant 
is mentioned in Scripture. Genesis 6, 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. I want a relationship with you, and I'm going to make a promise to you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. See, God chose to make a covenant with Noah because of his grace and because of his love. When you see a covenant made, whether it be in the secular society or wherever it is, in Scripture, and when you see it in any culture even today, the basis of that, of that covenant is to be love. You see, a marriage covenant, the basis of that is to be love. The covenant that God made with Noah was a covenant of grace and a covenant of love. Man deserved absolutely nothing. But God had a promise that he began to, 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 to mention in Genesis chapter 3. And he's keeping that promise alive by sh- selecting a man by the name of Noah, finding favor with him, cutting covenant with him, and he's going to spare him and his wives and his children, his wife and his children. The motive of covenant is rooted in God's grace, and it's manifested by love. Man deserved nothing from God, but God kept his loving grace God in his loving grace kept his promise. And you know, go back to Hebrews 8, 6. And he has obtained a better covenant with better promises. What kind of relationship do we have now that Christ has come? Secondly, the mindset of covenant. Now, in their culture, when two people entered into a covenant, they understood. It's a lost language today. We don't, we don't even understand it today. But in their language and in their understanding, they did, they did know what it meant. They were taking upon themselves uh, a new identity. They were uh, entering into something that was absolutely brand new. So covenant is when two enter into a oneness. It's a relationship that's binding. Each lose their right to independent living. The covenant ritual is seen in many places in Scripture. It's never seen in full detail. We have a piece here. We have a piece there. But yet the people that have researched this and gone back into the history said it was a part of their culture. Even today, you can go to any tribe in Africa today. And I've I've been to some of those. And, and you'll have to be in covenant with the chief or you cannot minister to that tribe. And so everybody has to work on how can we enter into a covenant with that chief. And in the culture today, you would give a gift of some kind. In fact, there's a, a man in Africa today. I've met him. He's called the toilet seat evangelist of Africa. <laughs> I wouldn't put that on the website, but that's, that's, that's what he's called. You say, how in the world did he get that name? Wayne, you bring that up in a service. That's it. I'm telling you straight out fact. He was trying to get into a tribe up near Botswana in the northern part of, of South Africa, and he just couldn't break through with the tribal chief. They will not let you in unless you have, first of all, a covenant with that chief. And so there was a man who had a truckload of toilet seats, <laughs> a Mack truck, and it broke down in his area. And the truck was toast. I mean, he couldn't do a thing with it. And he happened to run across this man. And the man said, do you want my cargo? And he said, I'll take it. And so they took all of those big boxes of toilet seats off. Well, he goes to the chief and says, I got something for you. (laughs) And I guarantee you, the chief did not know anything like that. 
He gave him the toilet seat. The chief was so excited about it that he allowed him to come in and witness and share the gospel with the tribe. And so all over South Africa, he is called the toilet seat evangelist. But it goes right back to that, to that, what I'm talking about. Covenant is still prevalent today. And in many societies, they haven't lost the language. We are the ones in America that have lost the language. God took the human custom of covenant right out of their culture, right out of their vocabulary to show how he wanted to relate to mankind. As far as most can understand, there were two major parts to covenant. First was the part that had to do with identity. This is where we see the meaning of covenant. The ritual was something like this. First of all, in the identity part of the covenant, there would be an animal sacrificed. And that's not a pleasant thought, but an animal had to be sacrificed. Animals were, uh, were, 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 were life, uh, they, were, <laughs> they had life in them, <laughs> whatever the word I was looking for. There was a death required. Blood had to be shed. Now, you begin to see the picture coming out of this. In Genesis 15, verse 1, when God cut covenant with Adam, Abraham, he said, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, what, what shall you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he delivered and believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to, to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Now watch what God does. In order to anchor his promises, in order to assure him, he says in verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old male, female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these and cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. Now, what's happening here is God is about to cut covenant with Abraham. We'll learn much more about this the next time. The everlasting covenant is the one he's cutting. The covenant of grace is what he's promising to Abraham, of which we're a part even today. So the animal was sacrificed, cut in half, and just as we read, the halves were laid opposite each other. Now, this path that was formed was a gory, bloody path in which two the two cutting covenant would walk. Now, can you imagine the sobering understanding of the cost of this covenant? And if we're going to be in relationship to each other, we have to walk in between the parts of these slain animals in order to cut that covenant. They would enter this bloody path. This was so significant. You know why? Because the path is called the way of death. You say, well, what do you mean? A death to an old way of living. And you're entering into newness of life. Each partner was entering into a brand new way of life. They were no longer allowed to live independently of one another. Now, what do you think today reminds us of that covenant that we go through weekly and monthly and, diff and different couples? It's a wedding. And the old boy that's saying these vows, 
hasn't got a clue what he's saying. His, by the way, his wife will remind him for the rest of his life what he said. He's about to lose his right of independent living. If we could get covenant language back into marriages today, what a difference that would make in our country. We go into marriage with prenuptial agreements. We go into marriage with, if you leave me, no, sir, there is no leaving. Covenant, you must understand covenant until death do us part, period. It comes right out of Scripture. It's never changed. We're the ones who have changed and not honoring those covenants anymore. In our relationship to God, we lose our right to independent living. Put this in our, our relationship to Him. We enter into a covenant with God. We walk in the way of death, death to self and all of its desires. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature, brand new. The old things, including the way he used to live, has done what? Passed away. Behold, new things have come. Once the two had entered into the way of death, they would exchange robes. Now, this was significant because the robe had to do with possessions. And in other words, when, I, when you exchange covenant and you give somebody your robe and they give you their robe to put on, you're now identified with them. Where's that in Scripture, Wayne? I'm so glad you said that. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, when David and Jonathan cut covenant, it says, now it came about when he had finished speaking of Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Remember that basis of love? Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of that robe that was on him and gave it to David. Now, what does that mean? It's two. It's one taking on the identity of the other. This had to do with their possessions. Whatever one of them owed or owned, the other one now owns, but that's the downside. Whatever one owes, now the other one owes because everything is made mutual. There's a oneness taking place in covenant. Just think of this. As we entered into covenant with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, He was our sacrifice that was slain. He is the way, only through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was His blood that was shed and then we exchanged robes. You say, how did we do that? He wore my, our robe of humanity to the cross so that we could wear his robe of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that he, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Just think about that. We have exchanged robes. They, at, once the robes were exchanged, then they would exchange belts. Now, whereas the robe had to do with possessions, the belt had to do with protection. The weapons were worn on the belt. It was the belt that Jonathan gave to David when they entered into covenant. In 1 Samuel 18, 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan would protect David. David, on the other hand, would protect Jonathan. And you know the story of how one would protect the other. And Jonathan's father was Saul, remember that. And he was the king that hated David. Once these two men entered into covenant, they were bound to protect one another. The 19th chapter of 1 Samuel tells us of how Jonathan protected David from Saul. Now Christ becomes our protection. We're now his property in the new covenant. 
Saul, who, or the New Testament, Saul, who later became Paul, the apostle, was on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians to, to persecute and persecute the believers. You remember the story in Acts 9? Christ met him on the road. And when Paul saw Christ revealed, the resurrected Christ revealed, Acts 9, 3, it says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell on the ground, now listen to this, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, wait a minute. Paul didn't have any idea he was persecuting him. He thought he was persecuting them. You see, you mess with me. I, I want you to understand this, folks. When a believer lives in covenant with the Lord Jesus, with the Father, when he, you live in that covenant relationship, listen, what God is saying to people who get on us, you mess with them, buddy, you have messed with me because I'm in covenant with them. I'll tell you one thing. It'll make you sleep better when you begin to understand that. Once a belt were exchanged, they would exchange names. Two had become one. We see this in the New Testament when the disciples who were, who were called Christians, Christians in Antioch. Acts eleven twenty six. and when he had found them, he brought them to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians, Christians in Antioch. Christians. In fact, in Genesis 15, Abraham is not Abraham. We say Abraham. It's pronounced better than that. He was Abram. Abram. In Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying. Now, it, it was in chapter 17 that his name was changed to Abraham. That's the breath sound. That's the Yahweh sound. God was giving him his name. Sarah was changed to Sarah. In Genesis 17, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be, we'd say Abraham, Abraham. Boy, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Then in verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, she shall not, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. God changed their name. Why? They were in covenant with him. And God now was going to be their protector. And the way we protect God is by living faithful to Him and saying yes to Him. But He protects us. He is our strength. He is our protection. They enter into a new covenant. They're bound into an agreement that cannot be broken. You know, I love that picture of protection in that. I love the picture of identity. It's kind of like when uh, John Sondager was on staff with us. I used to like to walk around with him. And somebody walk up and want to say something. I said, you want to fight me, buddy? He's me, buddy. <laughs> you could have him for a while. He's bigger than I am. That's kind of the idea. That's the whole idea of covenant. The motive of covenant is grace and love. It's founded in that. You don't make covenant. In fact, in their culture, they didn't make covenant but with one person. And they waited until they found that right person. And then love was the motive. The mindset of covenant is that oneness of relationship. You enter into something through the way of death. You enter into a oneness with somebody. And they become your, your identity. You find your identity in them. The next thing, the final thing, <coughs> is the message of covenant. The sobering part of covenant is what happened next. This is the part, the vows. Once the robes, the belts, the names were exchanged, then they would cut the wrist of each of the two entering into covenant. Now, can't you just see the picture? A bloody path here. It's a very sobering thought. Each wearing the other's robe and belt 
and then they would cut their wrist. You see, this picture is the blood of one flowing into the blood of the other. They're becoming one. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the wrists were cut. Then what they would do is take a piece of rope and tie it in a figure eight knot. This, this, you know what a figure eight does? It never stops. It just shows the lastingness of that covenant. You do a nine, it stops. You do any other letter, but an eight or a zero or an eight is just going to continue to go. And why did he do this? Because the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Then they would put those rest together and they would tie them. Eight represented infinity. This covenant would last as long as both of them would live. In this position, obviously facing one another, the vows were taken. Jonathan restated his vow to David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 17. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Wouldn't this be great at a wedding? I've had a lot of couples come to me and say, Wayne, would you do a covenant wedding? I said, no, I don't think that's what you want. <laughs> I don't think that white dress is going to look white after we cut your wrist and put them together and tie them, etc. You see, after they would cut their wrist, they would also put a powder in there, would leave a mark. That's important. We bowed and made our vow to Christ when we entered into covenant through Him with the Father. In, in Romans 10 verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then, Now, let's go back to that powder. Once the vows were made, like I said, they would put a powder into that open wound so that there would be a scar that would be left when it healed. And there, there you go. That's that idea of you want to fight me, buddy? <laughs> I'm in covenant with this old boy right over here. As long as you had that scar, everybody knew that they were not dealing just with you. They were dealing with somebody else also. Once this part of the ceremony was over, they would give a gift. That gift was a covenant gift. And I'd, I'd love to see this at a wedding. It'd be a flock of sheep. Can you imagine? <laughs> now, every time you see those little lambs and you see those sheep, that means I love you and I'm in covenant with you. It, it could be a, a, some seeds to plant some little trees. And as they would grow up, they would be a reminder of that. Every time we would see this, they would be reminded. In a marriage ceremony, it, it's a ring. Uh, we, we have gifts. The Holy Spirit living in us is the mark upon us that we're in covenant with a, with a holy God. And God has given us gifts. We realize that. The gifts, the ministry, and the effect that God has given to us. Then there would be a meal to celebrate. Just like, I mean, it still goes on today. This is taken right out of culture. We see this at weddings. The groom and the bride feeding one another, looking goofy. And, and they put the cake into each other's mouth as they eat together. It came right out of this ancient covenant ritual. But what a picture. What a picture. In fact, on Christmas Eve, we'll be partaking of that meal. To, to do what? To be reminded that we're in covenant with a holy God. It's called the Lord's Supper when we partake together. After instructing the believers at Corinth about the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now, once this ceremony had gotten to this point, once this had been done, there was a pronouncement and this is the most beautiful thing. They would pronounce, they, they would call one another friend. You know, that's the greatest word that you can possibly come up with. When you entered into covenant, and the last thing they would do would be make a pronouncement, you are my friend. And the other one would say, you are my friend. And John 15 and verse 14, Jesus said, you are my friends 
if you do what I command you. Verse 15 says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I've also made known to you. Covenant is never to be taken lightly. You don't play with this. You do not play with it. It's when two people have entered into a oneness. And when we enter into that oneness with God the Father, we lose our right of independent living. And he commits himself to us. There is a promise that he makes to us. In fact, better promises with the new covenant that we're in, in him. The most beautiful illustration I think you can talk about in covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 and following. And I want you to picture this. It was never written for this to be used this way, but I want to use it as an illustration. Some people get into covenant theology. That's not at all what I'm saying here. I just want to use it as a picture. I want you to picture in your mind that David, in this little illustration, is the Father, God the Father. And I want you to picture Jonathan as the Lord Jesus because he was the only one of the house of Saul that the Father could cut covenant, be in covenant with, and walk in absolute oneness together. And you remember when David conquered the palace and, and came in and his men came in. And you remember they had a little boy by the name of Mephibosheth. It was Jonathan's son that was, that was in the nursery. And the nurse either fell on him or dropped him or something and made him cripple. And she carried him out. Well, when David came into power, one of the first things he did was, was to ask if Jonathan had any children whatsoever that, that he could show favor to them. And Ziba, his servant, said, yes, he does. It's a little boy by the name of Mephibosheth. And he said, well, go get him. You see, every day of Mephibosheth's life, you've got to read into this story because he was thrown out of the nursery, out of the palace. He lived in Lodabar. Lodabar meant a place without any pasture. He lived out in the desert. He was a cripple. And I, I guarantee you, because of what he does when he gets there, what he says to King David, I guarantee you he lived either in fear or hatred of David and feared that chariot coming to his house because he was still related to Jonathan. And one day, sure enough, that chariot pulled up in front of his house. And that great big Roman soldier, or that great big soldier, not Roman, that great big soldier walked over. He was a soldier of David, walked over and knocked on the door. And you can see the trembling in that little boy that was crippled. And he came forward and he said, the king wants to see you. He came after him. Well, he takes him to the palace. When he gets there in the presence of the king, he falls on his face. And he says, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead dog. That's all he could think of himself. And David had him back up. And he says, listen, not only are you, a, I'm going to treat you as a son. I want you to sit at my table. I want you to sit at my table and sup with me. I want you to dine with me. And he made all the different promises to him. And can you imagine Mephibosheth sitting there at the table, wondering, wondering, what am I doing here? You know, one of the beautiful pictures of this is you can't tell a cripple when he's sitting at a table. And old Zeba, the servant, the evil, evil ser servant, probably walked by him and said, hey, boy, what are you doing here? You don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to sit at the king's table. Let me just ask you a question this morning. How many times has the devil told you that? How many times has he said, you're unworthy, you're a big failure, that's all you are. You don't deserve to sit at the king's table. And maybe King David overheard the conversation. And maybe King David was able to say, Mephibosheth, pass the biscuits. <laughs> if they had biscuits. Mephibosheth reached over and grabbed the biscuits and handed it to King David. And when King David took it, he stretched his arm out just a little bit further than normal. 
And when he did, there was a scar on his wrist. And for the first time, Mephibosheth began to realize why he could sit at the king's table. His daddy had cut covenant with the king. Jonathan's Jesus. David's the father. How is it we can sit at the king's table? Because now we're in covenant with the king. He has given us a better covenant built on better promises. Oh, Brother Wayne, I knew that. I knew that before I ever walked in here. Really? Then how do you treat the people around you? How do you treat your brother in Christ? Because if we're in covenant with God, and that means I can't live the way I used to live, and that means I'm totally up under his lordship, that means it's going to be reflected in the way I treat my brother because I'm just as much in covenant with you as I am with him. One affects the other. And you see what's happened to us, folks? We have lost the language of covenant. Christianity has become anything from church membership to whatever you can come up with. And we don't understand. We're in a covenant with a living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator, the one who makes it happen, the one who stands between the two parties of a better covenant built upon better promises. And everything has to do with your relationship to the Father. Everything has to do with your relationship to Him. You say, well, Wayne, is that all? Oh, my goodness, no. (laughs) That's just part one of about seven weeks we're going to look at covenant. I don't want us to move another inch until we understand what covenant is. When we go back and look at how the people cut covenant in the old covenant and promised God they would do whatever He said He would do, and the penalty of that was death and lived under that fear until finally a man came that could do everything the law required and then could go to the cross and pay the debt for all of us, the death for all of us, and then could go back into heaven and give us a better covenant built on better promises. And it begins to come clear. It's like a puzzle. And each message will be a piece to help us better understand what it means to be in covenant with God. And maybe this Christmas, we truly would understand that Jesus is the reason for the season. That's what we've been looking forward to. He's come, and we're now in covenant with God. Don't you love that? You go out in the world, some of you in the secular world, and you say, Wayne, men, they're on my case all the time. Don't sweat it. They mess with you. Who have they just messed with? They've messed with God, and He protects His people and walks with you everywhere you go. No matter how they treat you, remember, Paul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> I'm not persecuting you. I didn't even fool with you. I'm trying to deal with this. No, no. You mess with them. You've just touched me. And that's the security we have as a believer as we walk in covenant with him. Let me ask you a question. Anybody here today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not in covenant with God the Father because you haven't come through the only way in which you can have covenant with him? My friend, if you haven't, he loves you and standing right in front of you right now saying, come on, receive me into your heart. I was in the ministry eight years before that ever happened in my life. I learned real quickly how to play games with God. I wonder if anybody here 
is in that spot. Let's stand together. We're going to have men on both sides of this part and perhaps even down front depending on what space they can find if you'd like to come and talk with somebody. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 